Second Corinthians chapter 3 is our text, especially verses 12 and following. So if we will turn to that text. And I am going to read verses 7 through the end of the chapter, and verses 7 to 11 are a particular backdrop that speaks of this incident in the Old Testament where the glory of God is reflected in the face of Moses. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory." Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the Word of God. Let me direct your attention to the insert in the bulletin, which includes the sermon outlines, the title, Boldness in the Face of Glory, chapter 3, 12 to 18, as we see the fading glory of the Old Covenant, the permanent glory of the New and how you also are to have boldness in the face of glory. Shall we pray? Lord God, once again we are coming to you anticipating a blessing. We have no blessing apart from our Lord and God who comes to us that we might not fear, but we might be reconciled to you in Jesus Christ. Help us to know this blessing even more in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we've lived in Chattanooga a couple of times, and we would come down occasionally to Huntsville and go to the Space Center. And as I was driving into town again last night, I noticed off to the left the tallest rocket surrounding that building of the Space Center. And I realized that it is a Saturn V rocket. Do I have that right? It's that great booster that sent those men to the moon some years ago. And the most famous trip to the moon was on July 16th, 1969. I was in high school, so you know how old I am. But on the launch pad 39A, Apollo 11 sat on top of this same kind of rocket. I understand the rocket here is a replica. I was a little disappointed in that. But the original Saturn V rocket had five huge engines, one in the middle and four around the outside. 
And I can remember watching it on TV. I don't know if any of you had a chance to see the actual launch of either a Saturn V rocket or a little bit later the launch, let's say, of a space shuttle over in Cape Canaveral. And those who have seen such launches will say that the earth trembled and the light was almost too bright to look at directly. And as Apollo 11 lifted off on that day in July of 1969, we find that Apollo 11 eventually ended up on the moon. And I read an article that said Huntsville rejoiced. Interesting. A lot of that research was done right here. Now, if you look at that rocket and you feel the trembling of the earth, you realize that it wasn't long before that rocket burned out. And you wouldn't see any light anymore, and you wonder, well, what happened? Off into an orbit, Apollo 11 went, and you would gaze into the sky and say, well, it's over. We can go home now. It was great, but it's done. I don't any longer see the wonderful sight of that rocket ascending into the heavens. Now, where do we find in the creation an even brighter light than those rocket engines blasting off from Cape Canaveral? Well, we find it, of course, in the sun. Now, some of you may have seen a total eclipse of the sun where the shadow of the moon comes over across the face of the sun, and you're told, don't look at it. (laughs) Oh, we'd love to see it directly, but don't look at it because you will go blind or hurt your eyes. You will find that if you look at it long enough, the sun long enough, even partially obscured, you could have your sight affected drastically. You can't look at the light of the sun very long. And that is, of course, an even greater illustration of how bright the glory of God really is. You think The rocket launch showed you bright light. You think that the sun shows you a bright light. Think again. The even brighter glory occurs in the presence of God. We call it the Shekinah. You can think of it, say it over in your head, Shekinah glory. It means the brightest glory there could ever be. And in the Old Testament, if you looked at God's glory directly, you're told not to do it because you wouldn't just go blind you would die. Here we have Moses, even, in chapter 33, being hidden in the cleft of the rock where God shows him his glory. And he says, I'm not going to show you all of my glory. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I will show you, as he said rather cryptically, my back. In other words, you will see my glory, but it won't be the absolute fullness of glory. Even so... Moses' face shined from the brightness of speaking with God, of God showing him his glory. Now, for the Christian, we should long, and we do long, for light in our lives. The problem is that sin covers that light. In fact, we walk in darkness. And we need to find the true light of life, and we find that, in our Savior, but we must have that sin covered. And we must have the glory mediated through one greater than Moses, namely Jesus, who himself experienced outer darkness, that we might live in everlasting light. 
Through Christ only can we escape the darkness and begin to reflect his present and future glory through the Holy Spirit. Some of you are aware of the term the Ordo Salutis. It means the order of salvation. You might be familiar with the idea of regeneration and effectual calling, union with Christ, repentance and faith, conversion, and then justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. Now, we often think of justification as the heart of the Christian life. As I've said, we need to have our sin covered. Yes, indeed. But we have a greater need than that, you might argue, and that is for our lives to be changed by God so that we're not still walking in darkness, though we say we have the light. The Bible says again, we do not know the Lord if we are still walking in darkness. We are to walk in fellowship with God and in fellowship walk in the light as he is in the light and have fellowship with one another. So just as important as justification or forgiveness is, so also sanctification. A big word, it means a gradual conformity to the image of Christ. In other words, being more and more like God, more and more holy, more and more walking in his ways. We might read the catechism that says, what is sanctification? Some of you may know it from memory. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. We reflect God's brilliant glory by trusting in him and becoming like him. God's glory and brightness is absolute, but we can still reflect God's glory in our lives if we look at God in faith. Now the problem is that some people, particularly the Jews in Jesus' day and in Paul's time, were not hoping to be transformed by the glory of God. In fact, they were afraid of God still. They thought that they were supposed to obey God in order to become saved. But rather we know that if we are saved, if we're delivered from sin and its guilt, we want to walk in his ways. We therefore have a hope of glory. And this is what it says in verse 12, our first verse. Since we have such a hope, that is, of having great glory in our lives, we are very bold. We are very bold. We are not afraid of judgment any longer. We listen to what God says. We desire to come into fellowship with him. Now, the, the fact is, as we've seen in previous weeks, Paul was overjoyed that the Corinthians were being sanctified by his word. They turned away from sin. Remember this? And Paul was overjoyed to hear the news, as we saw last time in chapter 2, that there was a great triumphal parade. Remember, Remember that? And Paul was so grateful the great parade of grace was led by Jesus Christ and we are following in his train. But remember, there is a fading glory, or there was a fading glory, of the old covenant illustrated by Moses and the people. First of all, as it says in verse 13, not like Moses. So you might say, well, we should be like Moses. Well, not exactly. We should be greater than Moses, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end 
their hearts or minds were hardened. That is, they weren't really listening to Moses. Now, again, this is a curious story. We have to remember it and review it a bit. God revealed his law at Mount Sinai. When the people heard the law, were they glad to hear it? No, they were scared to death. Remember, they said, oh, we don't want to hear any more of this voice of God. Please, Moses, you be the one to hear the voice of God, and then you tell us what God said. And so Moses mediated and was like Christ in many ways. But the people, as soon as he went away up to Mount Sinai, said, oh, by the way, whatever happened to Moses? Well, they knew what happened. He went up to the top of the mountain. But he didn't return for a while. And they said, well, you know, what are we going to do here at the foot of the mountain? And they rebelled. They said, you know, we don't even know what happened to this Moses. Who knows what we should do? Well, they decided to build a golden calf, remember, and they bowed down and they worshipped it. They took all their gold and silver and they put it in the fire. And as Aaron later on said, with an excuse, out popped this calf. Didn't pop out. They made it. Okay. And then they started worshipping what they made. And when Moses saw it, he broke the two tablets of stone that God had written the law upon. For the people had broken the law, had broken the covenant, both copies, one for God and one for the people. And the law was dashed to pieces on the rocks. And then Moses prayed, O Lord God, do not abandon us. Please do not leave us in the desert to die. Lead us, as you promised, into the promised land. And then Moses prayed on Mount Sinai. And God, as you remember hearing from chapter 34, relented and said he was going to do even more wonderful things than before. Then, after that, God would meet with Moses in the tent of meeting. Perhaps you forget that. It wasn't the, only the Mount Sinai where God spoke to Moses, but there was a tent of meeting, a little bit like the tabernacle, the tent of meeting where God would speak to Moses. And he would go in the tent. And when he came out of the tent, all the people saw that his face was shining. Isn't that odd? And then he told them what God said. And then... And here's an even more odd thing. He covered his face until he spoke to God again. Now, why? Why? Well, it says, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, some translations say maybe Moses was a little embarrassed that the glory would fade. That's not what it says or what it means. It was not to disguise a lessening brilliance. But rather, it was a gracious, a gracious provision to prevent misunderstanding. Because if you saw somebody's face shining, what would you do? You'd make it into a tourist trap. Hey, let's go over and see this guy with a shining face. And Moses would become a spectacle. And everybody would go and see the face of, of Moses shining. And of course, the problem would be, they'd be looking at Moses. They would think that Moses was the point of salvation. And whereas this was a radiance that was not going to be permanent, a glory that was going to be temporary, it, the whole Old Testament economy, as it were, through Moses, would be brought to an end. Now, this is a very difficult concept to understand. In fact, some translations don't even make it very clear. But God's grace came through Moses when he presented the law. But even greater grace came through Jesus Christ. Moses was not the way of salvation. And the law was not the way of salvation. 
When you hear what you should do, you find fear in your heart. I like to give the illustration as I gave in the inquirer's class. Somewhere along the freeway in Tennessee and probably here in Alabama, once in a while somebody pays for a set of billboards and they have the Ten Commandments. They have, you shall have no other gods before me, no graven image. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother, and so forth. And when you, you see those signs, I think people are putting them up with good intentions. We need to change, they say. And our people have forgotten the law of God. Well, that's true enough. But what's the escape? Let's just read this and do it. The law says do it, so I guess we better do it as we're going down the road. But they never put verse 1, not that I've seen, that says, I am the Lord your God who have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I'm your God and Savior. I'm your deliverer. You are my people. You belong to me. You should serve me. You should follow me. You should listen to what I say because I've saved you in the old covenant from Egypt and I've saved you from your sins, ultimately. So the law is never a way of salvation. It's really a gracious warning to lead us to Christ, not to make us think, well, I've kept one or two of them. Remember the rich young ruler says, hey, I've kept the whole law from my youth up. And Jesus says, no, you haven't. I'll give you an example. Give your stuff away, and we'll find out where your heart is. And he goes, well, I can't do that. Jesus says, exactly. You don't really love me, do you? And this, of course, is our problem. We are afraid of condemnation, whereas we ought to come to Christ and say, Lord, I have committed adultery in my heart. I've killed in my heart. I've worshipped other gods. I've taken your name in vain. But I have a Redeemer. I have a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is even greater than Moses. Now, the people were afraid. They were afraid when they heard the law of God at Mount Sinai. They were trembling. They knew they were sinners. And they knew that they would die if God held them to the law of God. And the people were saying, in a sense, hide me from your glory. Hide us from the brilliance of your presence. I don't want to see it. I'm afraid I'm going to die. Whereas Moses went on top of the mountain. And you know what he said? He said, oh, Lord God, show me your glory. I'm not afraid of you, God, because I speak to you as a man speaks to his friend, and I know that you are a friend of sinners. And so we realize that the Old Testament people came to fear God slavishly rather than look to the Messiah who had come to deliver them from their sins. The glory in the face of Moses would lead them toward Moses as if he were the Savior, toward the law as if they had to keep it to be saved. And away from Christ, away from Christ. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord Jesus, your Savior, who has died for you to pay the penalty for your sin. This is what we ought to remember. But the result in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day was a veil was over their hearts. Now this is a little bit tricky. Moses had a veil so that the people wouldn't cling to Moses. But it also says, in a kind of a twist, the problem is the people also had their own veil. Now, what's a veil? It's a covering. A wedding veil covers the bride's face so that her face might not be seen fully. But the big problem is, what if your heart is covered? What if you can't hear what the Bible says? What if you don't want to admit you're a sinner? Or what if you think that the way to salvation is to obey the law? 
The veiling of the heart is in verse 15, or in 14, rather. Their minds were hardened. To this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil, this one is over their hearts. Only through Christ is taken away. They could not see the Savior. That's why they tried to kill him. Of all people, the Messiah comes, the light of life, God himself. And they decide to kill him? That shows where their hearts were. Their hearts were angry with God and afraid of God. Even to this very day, Jesus says in John 5, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, because Moses wrote of me. Moses was not writing about himself, (laughs) though God spoke through him. He was writing of the Messiah to come. That's what Jesus says. Moses wrote about Jesus. How? Well, we see it in Leviticus. All the sacrifices were a picture of the sacrifice of Christ. Deuteronomy, the giving of the law, was that people's hearts might be softened and returned to God. We find that all unbelievers ultimately believe in something else other than Christ's own merit. James Kennedy had a book in which he helped people to see how they needed a Savior. It was called Evangelism Explosion. It's been quite some time now since he wrote it. But some of his questions are still famous. And the most important famous question of James Kennedy that he would bring to unbelievers was this. If you were to die tonight, and you can think about this yourself, if you were to die this very moment for that matter, and you were to come before God, and he would say to you, why should I let you in to my heaven, is the way Kennedy put it. He expected, and he's right, that most people would say with some degree of fear, well, uh, uh, I think I've been better than others. Uh, I know I've been better than Hitler. I know I've been better than my neighbor because he doesn't go to church. Or I know I'm better than my brother who's kind of a rascal. Or whatever it is, you have an excuse. You think you're better than others. And you think that that's why God should let you into heaven, because you're a little bit better than somebody else in some way or other. The thing that I also note, and Kennedy pointed it out, everybody's thought about this. Very rarely will you find somebody say, well, I don't believe in God, because The assumption is you will believe in God. You will face him someday, and everybody knows it. They know deep in their hearts they're trying to run away from God. And so when the the evangelist says, why should I let you into heaven? God says that. You have an answer. You've already thought about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've done better than the psalm. I think if that were ever to happen. Well, we all know God deep in our hearts, but we're trying to cover it up. Here we have the reality that we only look to Christ. The real answer, of course, is the believer will say, I have sinned, I deserve hell. I don't deserve heaven. The only reason I can know, know and say to you, why should you let me into heaven, would be because Christ died for me. And that he has paid for my sins. And as evidence of that, you have begun to change my life. But I don't depend on that. I depend only on the work of Christ. So the reality is Christ alone has come into the very presence of God and his blinding brilliance would judge sin. Christ was not sinful, but he who knew no sin became sin for us. So God sees Jesus and he condemns Jesus on the cross and he leaves Jesus and he abandons him. 
And he pours out his wrath upon him of judgment so that when we look upon God through Jesus, without the veil, as it were, we see one like a son of God and we know that we are saved because he has paid for our sins. So it says here, To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But, verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Notice in verse 16, it doesn't just say someone or anyone. It's everyone, any person at all, not just Moses. And this is a tricky thing. When Moses turned to the Lord, he removed the veil. Well, what he's saying is, when you turn to the Lord, you must have the veil over your heart removed. So that you can see God face to face and he can speak to you and you won't die because you have Jesus Christ who has pled for you. I know this is a bit complicated. It's hard to understand at first. But with the example of Moses, you might get it. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. He trusted in God. Moses did. He spoke to God face to face. In Hebrews 11, it says that Moses was trusting God and looking to his reward. If you were to try to trust in yourself, it would be like trying to make a home in a blast furnace. You would be consumed by the fire and brilliance of God's perfection and glory, a little bit like Shadmach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were thrown into that fiery furnace, remember? And when they fell down to the fire, bottom of the fiery furnace... They did not die. In fact, they were kind of comfortable. They walked around. And there was a fourth man, you may remember, like the Son of Man, and we know this is a reference to Christ himself, was walking in the midst of the fire, and they did not die. And then when they were finally brought out from the fire, they didn't even have the smell of the smoke upon their clothes. They were completely protected from having walked around in a blast furnace that killed the people that threw them in. This means that God's glory, as bright as it is, as holiness, as consuming as it is, for he is a consuming fire, does not consume us. It actually changes us. The way gold is actually made more like gold in a furnace. Our faith is said to be like gold that is purified in a fiery furnace. If we look to Christ, we find that kind of freedom. And as it says here, we with unveiled face, now we have our unbelief removed, our new hearts are given to us, we look to God in Christ, we are no longer afraid, and we say like Moses, Lord, show me your glory. We behold the glory of the Lord, and when in faith we see God's glory, we are being transformed and change. This is sanctification. This is what he's talking about. We are not only forgiven, we are changed. We are changed or transformed from the same image, into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. No one can see God and live. I like to give illustrations from movies, and some of them are pretty old, I'm sorry. But there's an old movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Indiana Jones is in this movie. And what's happened is the Germans have stolen the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember this, maybe I've already told you the illustration. 
But when they capture the Ark of the Covenant, the Germans think they're going to get a great and powerful weapon to defeat their enemies. And they decide to take the top off the Ark of the Covenant. And the bad German guy looks into the Ark and his face melts off because he's seen the glory of God and he can't see the glory of God and live. It's kind of a good illustration. He can't live. He's not given any power by looking at the law or at the glory of God. He will be consumed by it, and his eyes are burned out, and so would ours be. But Moses says to the people in Exodus 20, when they say, hey, we don't want to hear any more of this, Moses says, do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. That's not fear of punishment, but the honor and the praise and the faith we have in deliverance from God's wrath through Christ will keep us from sinning will change us. God is not going to kill you. He is going to save you and purify you by this glory. Outside of Christ, they would have died. But in Christ, we look to Jesus, and we are not consumed. We are no longer afraid of judgment. We are no longer afraid of purification. We are no longer afraid of of glory. We will be changed from glory to glory. Now you tell me whether or not sanctification is easy. It's not easy. But it comes to us as we look at Christ. Oh Lord, show me your glory. Save me. And the fire, the flames will not hurt you, as one hymn says. I only design your dross to consume and your sin to refine. In other words, we're going to get rid of sin in your life. Gradually, slowly, as you look to me, you learn to hate your sin and to love your Savior. And we flee from sin until we one day in heaven will be as free from sin as he is. And we're not afraid even now to show the glory of God in our lives. One of my favorite illustrations comes from a writer named George MacDonald, he was one of the inklings of C like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and Dorothy Sayers who got together in England and were writers who were believers and they said to themselves, how are we going to illustrate the glory of God? How are we going to show in novels what it's like to be saved from sin? George MacDonald wrote The Princess and Curtie. If you haven't read it, I would urge you to do so. It's a great story for children but also for adults. And what it is is this Curdy, that's the boy's name, is given a quest from the princess. That is, a job to do. And yet, he was not able to do the job himself. And so he was called into the presence of this princess. And the princess speaks to Curdy in a cave and says, Come, Curdy, to this side of my wheel. You will find me. And she, he obeyed, and we, he sees her in all of her loveliness, in all of her beauty. But there was a strange thing next to the princess. There was a huge hearth. That's a fireplace, okay? A great fire was burning in the fireplace. And the fire was a huge heap of roses, of all things, and yet it was fire, and the smell of the roses filled the air. The heat of the flames glowed upon his face. He said, what am I supposed to do now? 
And she says, well, you've already done some things that you shouldn't be able to do on your own. You've done them well. But I'm going to give you the final test. Do you think you are ready for this test? How can I tell, ma'am, according, seeing I do not know what the test is or how to get ready for it? It's, it's, it needs only, she says, trust and obedience. She says, he says, command me then. She says, now know that when I give you this test, there's a big fire over there. There's a flame. It will hurt you, Curdy, but that will be all. No real hurt will come, but much good will come from it. And then she said very hurriedly, before he had too much chance to think, go and thrust both of your hands into that fire. And Curdy didn't stop to think. He just did what the princess said. It was too terrible to think about. He rushed to the fire and he just did it. He put both of his hands into the fire. The middle of this heap of flaming roses, his arms halfway up to the elbows with flame. And it says, it did hurt. He did not draw his hands back. He held the pain as if it were a thing that would kill him if he let it go, as indeed it would have. He was in terrible fear, lest it should conquer him. But when the pain was so bad, he thought he could bear it no longer, it started to fall and went on growing less and less until, in contrast with the previous pain, it had become rather pleasant. At last the pain ceased altogether, and Curdy thought, I don't want to look at my hands now. They must be burned to ashes. And he couldn't even feel his hands. He was afraid to do it. But the princess says, take your hands out and look at them. He did so and found that all that was gone of them was the rough, hard skin. His hands were white and smooth like the princess's. Come to me, she said. He obeyed and saw to his surprise that her face looked as if she had been weeping. Do you think she had felt that pain? Oh, princess, what's the matter? Did I make a noise and vex you? She says, no, Curdie, but it was very bad. He says to the princess, did you feel it then too? And she said, of course I did. But now it is over and all is well. Because Christ endured the pain, the suffering, and the flames of judgment, we now, like Curdy, can know that we can endure the pain and live and even be sanctified and purified because of it. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You can't endure anything in your own strength. The Holy Spirit has to come upon you and say, you must endure this pain. I know someone who has tried to be purified from the effects of alcoholism and drug abuse and he has had to go into a center where they try to take him off of drugs and alcohol 
And it turns out it's very painful. It's more painful than he could imagine. And yet, by God's grace, he has been delivered by the Lord through the pain because only in the pain of withdrawal from sin can we learn to love the Savior and love holiness and righteousness as we should have done from the beginning. May God grant us the strength to endure that transformation from one degree of glory to the other, from the Lord, who is the Spirit, shall we pray. Lord God, help us even now to know that we should not be afraid of your love and of your purification of our lives, even though it is very difficult and very painful. Lord God, deliver us from our sins. May we hate sin so much, and may we love the Savior so much that we will endure the pain and the suffering, and we will deny ourselves, and we will take up our crosses as we've already sung, and follow you in Jesus' name. Amen.